Good morning. My name is Scott Gilliland. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Lover's Lane. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, along with Reagan Gilliland, we uh, co-pastor this worship community that we call Thrive, and we're just glad that you're here with us as we continue on our journey through Lent, which is the season of preparing for Easter. And we have a sermon series that we've been engaged in during this season uh, that we have called From Empty to Overflowing, uh, because there's this thing called the lectionary, and it is a uh, collection of scripture readings that, that goes over the course of three years, and every Sunday, um, a, a lot of denominations use the lectionary, and there's a, there's a, a psalm text, an Old Testament text, a uh, gospel reading, and a text from one of the epistles. And uh, we were looking at those selections during the season of Lent, and we noticed uh, that many of the scriptures uh, deal with uh, the theme of emptiness and the, the way that God reaches people and meets people in empty places and moments of emptying themselves. And so uh, today we're going to continue in that series as we look at a scripture from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Um, Paul was an early church leader. And uh, he had a unique history, which we'll talk about in just a second, but he wrote letters to the churches in the Roman Empire that were beginning for the Christian movement uh, in that first century, and a lot of those letters became uh, the letters in our scripture in the New Testament, and, um, and one of those is the, Paul's letter to the Philippians, the church that's in Philippi. Now, before we read this scripture this morning... I want to say a, a brief word about who Paul was, because I think this is a scripture that really uh, deals a lot with the person of Paul, and you hear Paul's character and personality coming out in spades in this selection of scripture. Uh, he was, before a Christian, um, or a member of the Christian movement, I should say, Paul was a very zealous uh, Jewish leader. He was a Pharisee. When you read about the Pharisees in the Gospels, Paul was one of those guys. Pharisees were very driven by the law. They held lots of power. Um, they were driven by the rules of the law of the Old Testament, the 600-some-odd rules that came with the, um, the, 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 the books of the Old Testament, Leviticus um, and Deuteronomy. And uh, Paul, like most Pharisees, was very driven by a desire to be self-righteous based upon the those rules, and he was very legalistic, but he took it to an extreme where he would persecute members of the early Christian movement before he was one of them. Uh, he went so far as uh, killing or having people killed who were early Christians, and then he has this spiritual experience on the road to Damascus. That's the name of the story where it happens. And, uh, and he meets, he encounters this presence of God, this presence of Christ on this, on this road to Damascus, and all of a sudden everything in his life changes. His understanding of his faith changes, his understanding of his religion changes, and now he's a member of this Christian movement. Now notice I say he doesn't become a quote-unquote Christian. He doesn't stop being Jewish. We kind of have a, a, a tendency to want to separate Christianity and Judaism today as two totally different faiths when really there's so much shared. I mean, Christianity is built on the history of the Jewish tradition. Um, we are absolutely brothers and sisters in terms of the great tree of faith. But at this time, especially, um, the early Christians, many of them, especially the early church leaders, many of them considered themselves Jewish. 
Jewish. Paul died believing himself to be a Jew who was just part of this Christian movement within Judaism. Right? Same thing with Methodism, for the record. You know, John Wesley, who started the, the, the Methodist movement, he never intended to found a denomination. In fact, he died thinking he was an Anglican who had started a movement for renewal within the Anglican church. And then he accidentally started a denomination. That's when you know you're doing your job really well when you accidentally start a denomination. Uh, Paul, same thing, died thinking he was a, a, a Jewish person, never saw the two as separate. He believed that Jesus was the fulfillment of a, a better way of understanding his Jewish faith. So understanding all of that about who Paul is, this guy who had been driven by rules, who'd been driven by self-righteousness, who had taken that to really harmful, violent extremes, and then becoming this great leader in the early Christian church who wrote you know, so much of what is now our New Testament. Um, let's go together into this scripture that, in case you weren't intrigued enough already, is the one place in the New Testament that maybe Paul cussed. And we're going to talk about that today. So now I've got your attention. Let's go to God in prayer, shall we? Um, gracious God, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for uh, your word. We give you thanks for your Apostle Paul. We give you thanks for second and third and fourth and fifth chances. We give you thanks for choosing people like us, broken people, messy people, to be your leaders, to be your followers, to be your children. And God, as we prepare to receive your word this morning, as we prepare to hear uh, the words that Paul has for the church in Philippi, Allow them to be words for us as well. Let them leap off of the screens and off of the pages of our Bibles and into our hearts. They might change the way that we live. All this we pray and we say in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So here's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. He says, if anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. A member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee, so he's listing his credentials, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So he's a humble guy as well. Yet whatever gains I had, he says, these I have come to regard as lost because of Christ. More than that. I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. The word of God for the people of God, let us say. Thanks be to God. So, 
Uh, right now in, in, uh, our, in the life of the church is a season that, that we sort of call BOM season. It's Board of Ordained Ministry, and it's the, the really big, essentially huge job interview. You go before uh, the board uh, for our conference if you want to be ordained in the Methodist church. And Reagan and I went through this last year. It's incredibly stressful. It's about as much fun. as It's, it's an hour and a half where you go from room to room. There's three different rooms and about uh, 15 people in each one staring you down, and they Try to make it as friendly as, as a job interview with 15 people in each room for the course of an hour and a half can be, right? Uh, but it's, it's pretty stressful. And so I've been thinking about my friends and colleagues who are going up for this um, round of interviews this year. It got me thinking about job interviews in, in general. And, you know, there's this one question that I always hate in job interviews. And it's, what's your, what do you think is your greatest weakness? I hate that question. Because it sounds like a question that's kind of like a trick question, right? Because you always want to try to answer it in a way that doesn't really sound like a weakness. You're like, you know, I just care too much. (laughs) I just work too hard. Um, Or my favorite, and this is one that I'll throw out there sometimes, you know, I I can be sometimes a bit of a perfectionist, you know. Do you like that as a weakness? I just, you know, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. And it's kind of funny, but, but if you know someone who's a perfectionist, or if you are a perfectionist, or if you love someone who's a perfectionist, you know that it's also not funny, right? Perfectionism can be really dangerous, and it can be a huge weakness. Um, I was reading this past week about a study that was done by uh, these two guys, Thomas Curran and Andrew Hill, and they're British, so you know it's a good study. You know it's smart. Uh, they did this 30-year study from 1980, roughly 30 years, from 1989 to 2016, and they found that uh, about two out of five kids and adolescents are perfectionists. Um, and, and they said that it's not just about being a perfectionist, but they said it's dangerous because they found that this perfectionist streak in roughly um, 40% of kids and adolescents was also tied to uh, a slew of mental health issues, eating disorders, anxiety, and depression. So perfectionism isn't just about wanting to be excellent or to do things the right way. It's actually kind of a dangerous tip to an iceberg. And, and I know, like, I know where we are right now. Um, city of Dallas, uh, in this sort of region of North Dallas and the suburbs, I mean, there's a lot of driven people. And I bet there's a lot of perfectionists in the room today. Or I bet you're married to a perfectionist. If you're a perfectionist, go ahead and say, amen. Yeah, yeah that was defeated, amen. Yeah. <laughs> if you love someone who's a perfectionist, go ahead and say, amen. Yeah, see, they're really sure. That was much more confident, yeah. I think we need to talk about this, and I think that our faith has something to say about perfectionism, because it's not as simple as wanting things to be done the right way. It it, it can be a really dangerous part of our personalities, and it can cause a lot of woundedness for ourselves as individuals and for the people that we love. And here's the really good news is I think that our faith, and I think that Jesus has something to offer us that is such a better option than this perfectionism that really is, for a lot of us, our greatest weakness. So let's talk about perfectionism. Um, Last week, Reagan mentioned that uh, I am no good at sports. Um, And and it's true. It's true. I am am no good at sports. I have long been no good at sports. Um, 
I tried a few sports when I was growing up. I played like a season of baseball or, you know, it, it was like third grade baseball, right? So they were just trying to like throw the ball over the plate. Um, I played like a season of flag football. Uh, I, I did like swimming. Uh, I, I liked the backstroke because I could lay down and compete at the same time. Um, that was a good one. I liked that one. Did that for a few seasons. Uh, and then in seventh grade was really the last year that I did any sports. And I want to tell you about the, the, really my, my last experience of sports because <laughs> it's really funny. Um, so I, I played football, it was, and it was just awful, it was just awful. Uh, I was a receiver, but my head was so large, they put me in an offensive lineman's helmet, so I had all the bars in front of my face, um, which makes it really easy to see the football when it's being thrown at you. And I kid you not, it hit me in the head in one game. I kid you not. Um, that was the last time it got thrown to me. The coach was like, just go sit down. Um, and then uh, football season ended in seventh grade, and it became the off season, which your options were cross country, which is their way of saying uh, nicely, run till you puke every day, right? Uh, or you could try out for the basketball team. Now, I never played basketball, but I did not feel like running that day, so I was like, I'm going to basketball tryouts, right? And uh, there's about 50 of us in the, in the gym, and the coach is warming us up. And uh, having us run down to this line, run back to this line. Yeah, I was thinking about this because uh, the final four. Any Red Raiders fans in the room? Yeah. You better be at church today because I know you were making promises to Jesus yesterday. So <laughs> just glad you're here. And if you're streaming online, good job too. Um, it counts. It still counts. Um, so, so he's got us warming up for basketball tryouts. And, uh, and then he said, okay, boys, let's run, run a quick drill. And he, uh, he says, I just want you to dribble up to the basket, do a layup. And then pass the ball to the next kid. Dribble up, do a layup. He, and somehow I end up in the front of the line, right? And he passes me the ball. And I raise my hand. He said, what? I said, what's a layup? He said, go sit down. <laughs> I said, that's fine as long as I'm not running. That sounds great to me. I'll go sit in the corner. That was my last experience of sports, right? So I'm not, I don't have an illustrious athletic career, right? That was, that, I'm not kidding. That was the last time I tried out for any team. That was the end uh, with a fizzle. So I, I, I did. I stopped trying to play sports after that. Uh, I, I went the musical route. Uh, not musicals. I went like drumline um, route. I mean, I just, like Dee Dee said, I, I, I'm not much of a singer. But um, uh, I, I stopped trying with sports. I stopped uh, because I had convinced myself that I just wasn't any good. Which wasn't entirely true. I mean, it was true. I wasn't that good, but I also hadn't really tried a, a lot of sports. But I was the type of personality, maybe this is you too, where if I try something and I'm not immediately good at it, I just kind of give up on it. Um, anybody else like that? Am I the only one? Uh, yeah. I, I just, I, I, even as a kid, I had no patience for trying to learn how to do something well. Um, and it's, it's funny, but it's not. Because at the root of that is, is a brand of perfectionism that says, like, well, if I'm not good at it, I can't handle the reality of failure. I can't handle the reality of not being successful at something, so I'm just not going to try it at all. And, like, that's a really dangerous way to go through life. Uh, it's, it's been a part of my personality that's not always been good for me. In fact, frequently it's, it's brought me pain because what it does is it leads me to always choose the path of least resistance unless I'm conscious of that. The path of least resistance, it's, it's what makes streams and rivers run the way that they do. And if you know the way that, you know, water flows on mountains and hills, whatever, the path of least resistance always goes downhill, right? 
And I think that's true for water, and I think it can be true for life as well. If, if, if we're the type of perfectionist that says, if I'm not immediately good at something, if I don't see immediate results, and, and I'm so afraid of failure, I'm just not even going to try, and we continue to choose the path of least resistance, I, I don't feel like that's going to take us to the places that we want to go. And my fear is that it's a, it's a path that leads pretty consistently downhill. I, I, I think it, the first thing we have to acknowledge when we talk about perfectionism is, as individuals, we've got to give ourselves room to fail. You know, we live in a time and day and in a culture when failure just is not an option. Like, our businesses are driven by constant success. Our, our kids, you know, parents in the room, or if you know students, if you work with students, I mean, the pressures, I thought the pressures were bad when I went through school. You know, now in 2019, it's insane, the pressures that we're putting on kids and students, it's no wonder that 40% of them are, are perfectionists. It's this total fear of failure that only perfect is good enough, and that is just soul-crushing. Because maybe you're like me and it causes you to choose the path of least resistance, or maybe it causes you to just overwork and overwork and overwork, and it's never good enough. And my goodness, I've been there too, where you just become obsessive about trying to be perfect, and is that not soul-crushing? If you don't give yourself room to fail, if you don't give yourself room to be good enough occasionally, I mean, goodness gracious, when did we get to a place where perfect was the standard that we held ourselves to? Because let me tell you, everyone in the room, real quick, I don't know if you know this, but you're not perfect. Like, look at the person next to you and say, you're not perfect. No, I'm serious. Look at the person next to you and say, you're not perfect. If you're streaming at home, look at the person next to you and say, I got news for you, you're not perfect. So let's go ahead and give that up for a second. I want you to, like, literally relax your shoulders. Give yourself a little space. Because I think we have just got this culture that we don't give ourselves room to fail. And sometimes failing can really hurt. I mean, a lot of times we're driven to be perfectionists because there are failures in our past that hurt a lot. They hurt a lot. I remember when I was in college and I didn't go to any, I didn't leave my dorm room for a week straight because I was so depressed and I felt like such a failure. And I was convinced that this was going to be the end of my life as I knew it. Right? Like I know there are failures that really, really hurt. I'm not trying to minimize that. But man, if our response to that is say, well, I can't give myself room to fail ever again. Well, that's just going to be a, a lifetime of disappointment and frustration and anger. Because you're going to fail. So give yourself the room to. Allow yourself to learn from it. Allow yourself to laugh at it. I went to a basketball trial and didn't know how to do a layup. That's funny. <laughs> like, it was embarrassing. <laughs> but it's also hilarious. we got to give ourselves room to fail. But Paul reminds us, you know, I, I think... Sometimes we think that, you know, I'm a perfectionist because I just, I, I really want to work hard and I want to do well. And, and here's the deal. Just because we give up perfectionism doesn't mean that we stop working hard. It doesn't mean that we stop trying. It doesn't mean that God's going to give us a path of least resistance, right? Life with Jesus is not a life of least resistance. In fact, listen to what Paul says. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. See, Paul knows that in failure, in death, in these things that we think are the end of us, that's where God gets to work. That's where learning and redemption and growth, those things can happen there. Y'all, we're getting to Easter, right? Easter's coming, right? We know this. 
He says, I press onward, I strain forward. Paul knows that the life of faith with Christ is harder than the life he left behind that was driven by rules. Keeping 600 some odd rules isn't easy, but a life with Jesus, let me tell you, it's harder because it demands that we go to those suffering and, and deathly places, those places that feel like failure because that's where God gets to work. So let's talk about not just how it affects us personally. Obviously, perfectionism is something that, that hurts us personally. If you're a perfectionist, you know what I'm talking about. Or if you love a perfectionist, you've seen that in their life. You know what I'm talking about. But perfectionism, y'all, let's be clear. Perfectionism is also really harmful for the people around us. So let's talk about that for a second. Because when perfect is our standard, not just for ourselves, but for the people and the world and the systems around us, when perfect is our standard, nobody and nothing is ever going to measure up. That's a dangerous way to live. That's a dangerous way to view the people around you. Look at Paul. Paul's past, driven by rules, driven by a perfect standard. I'm a Pharisee. These are the rules that you're supposed to keep. I keep them. He said, by the, by the law, I was blameless. Right? He says this after following Jesus. He's looking back going, I was pretty good. I was a pretty good Pharisee. I was blameless by the law. And he expected others to be that way. And so when this Christian movement forms, not just breaking one or two laws, they're proclaiming the Messiah has come. Now, that's some heresy. He kills them. He hunts them down, imprisons them, kills them in the name of his religion, in the name of his faith. What we call perfectionism theologically, we call that self-righteousness. Paul was driven by this, this theology of self-righteousness. I'm blameless and you're not, so that gives me power and authority over you. And if you don't get in line, then I have the authority to, to do whatever I want. By the law, I can kill you. Whew. You might think, like, Scott, I'm not that over the top. No, I, I'm not saying that maybe we live quite like Paul, but don't we sort of think that way? Have you ever gotten in that place of self-righteousness that, where you thought, man, everyone around me just doesn't measure up? Now, maybe, here's what I want to talk about. As a recovering perfectionist, I have to ask myself the following question. When I look at the people around me, as someone who knows that, that I can have impossibly high standards for myself or even for the people that I love, I have to ask myself this question. Do I give the people around me room to mess up? Do I give the people around me room to fail? You know, Paul didn't give people around him room to fail. If you failed in Paul's eyes, you were done. You were dead. You were gone. And I like to think that I'm better than that, but am I really? Do I give the people in my life room to fail? Do I give them room to mess up? You know, Reagan and I are doing a lot of work with marriage ministry right now. And one of the, the things that, that she has us work through whenever we're leading one of our retreats, we talk about this very thing. That in marriage, do you give your spouse room to fail? And not just room to fail, but will you back them up knowing they're going to fail? Like married people in the room or people in relationships in the room, has the person you loved ever done something that you knew at the time like, that was a bad decision? That ain't going to work out. That ain't going to work out at all. That's going to fail. And I know it, and they don't. Man, good for me, huh? <laughs> and, and you say, okay, I'm going to give them room to fail. But you give them room to fail, but why? You go, I can't wait to say I told you so. <laughs> that is going to feel so good. 
So the second, the second it blows, not even the second it blows up, like when the fuse is lit, you're like, I told you so. You know, I can't wait to tell you. Oh, oh my gosh, I saw it coming. I saw it coming. I didn't say a word. I saw it coming. You didn't listen to me, but I saw it coming. Told you. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what I'm talking about, y'all. I'm talking about giving people room to fail and then backing them up. Letting them know that you love them and that you still have their back even when they mess up. That's a critical message to hear. That, that applies to marriage. It applies to parenting. You know, my daughter is working through these workbooks right now. And, uh, and, and she's, she's working on her letters, right? Tracing her letters. She's three. She's working on tracing her letters. And uh, everyone who knows me knows that I have perfect penmanship. Um, that was my mom that just laughed. Um, so... I don't. <laughs> but when she's doing it, like, it's weird as a parent, you know, and, and she's tracing. And the second she gets off, like, my instinct is to want to, like, reach over immediately, like, help you get back, get back online. Because, like, if you don't get these tracings down and when you're three, then Harvard's off the table, you know. Um, and, like, I have to, like, I have to, like, consciously pull myself back and let her just jump, jump, jump. That's an A. Well, not really, but okay, yeah, that, that's a good start. Let's start there. Let's try again, you know. I have to give her room to, to mess up. And I, and I can't communicate to her that, you know, oh, well, you only get approval and affirmation from me when you do things the right way. Like, she needs to know that I'm there with her and that I'm giving her room to draw outside the lines and to work. And guess what? Her A's are pretty daggum good now, aren't they, Reagan? She is really good at those A's. Um, it applies to our workspaces. If you're a manager, if you're in a position of leadership, do you give your team the freedom to fail? Do they feel like you have their back even when they mess up? Because that's important. Because if people are scared to ever fail, guess what? They're going to stop trying to do things because that fear of failure is so big. So we need to be people who give freedom to fail, freedom to people around us to fail. We need to be people who can give a healing message to the loved ones in our lives, to the world around us, that when you mess up, I love you and I have your back. I'm not going to tell you I told you so. I'm not going to lord it over you. I'm not going to feel superior. And that's really hard. That's really hard if you struggle with this. But if you can give a message to the people that you love and the people who love you that I love you and I have your back even when you mess up, that's going to heal a lot of wounds. That's a message. That's a, that's a word of grace that I know a lot of people need to hear. And maybe you need to hear that. Maybe you need to tell someone that you love, I don't, I'm scared to fail around you. I'm scared to mess up because I just feel like you just think so little of me when I do. Maybe this week we need to have a hard conversation. Maybe this week we need to look in the mirror. I want us to be people who can give ourselves the freedom and give the people we love the freedom to fail. Okay, so I mentioned before that Paul uh, maybe or maybe doesn't cuss in this scripture that we just read. And you're probably sitting there this whole time like, Scott, the whole reason I showed up this morning was to figure out what that word was. Um, and you didn't hear it, obviously, when we read. That's because the NRSV translation that's in our Bible pews doesn't have cuss words in it. I don't know if you all knew this. but um, <laughs> That got one good laugh. Uh, Paul says this. He says, whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as lost because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Rubbish is such a polite word, isn't it? That sounds British, too. Rubbish. 
That's just a nice, polite word. The, the, the Greek word there is skubalon. I want to say skubalon. You just cussed in church. What's wrong with you? Why would you say that? When Paul writes skubalon, now, okay, the, the scholars are going to d- debate over this, but it's a word that may or may not mean dog dung and not the word dung. The crass version of that phrase. Right? This, is, this is a word, it's a hot debate, it's, as you can imagine. When, when, when scholars think there may or may not be a, a, a bad word in the Bible, it's a hot debate, right? But in the message, if you read the message translation by Eugene Peterson, he uses the phrase dog dung. He's saying it's dog doo-doo. Paul is saying, even the best translation of this is saying it's table scraps that you'd feed to a dog. But I, like to li- I, like to, I would like to live in a world where Paul keeps it real and refers to this stuff as dog dung. Do you want to live in that world? I do. I want to live in that world. So you're going with me. So Paul is saying that this perfectionism, this self-righteousness that he used to live his life by is as worthless as dog dung. That's pretty worthless. And if you're someone who has struggled with that, if you're someone who's been on the receiving end of that, you probably understand what he means by that. The perfectionism in my life has brought me very little joy. It has. It's brought me very little joy. Perfectionism doesn't let you really celebrate the wins. It just keeps you more afraid of the losses. And so, church, I want us to be able to see self-righteousness and perfectionism as the empty, worthless, dog dung that they are. And to know that these things are not helpful for us. You may think that being a perfectionist helps make you excellent, and yet you may be an excellent person. You may do things with excellence, but your perfectionism is causing you more pain than it's bringing you joy, I promise you. So why do we hold on to so much dog dung? Why do we keep it in our, in our homes? Why do we keep it in our hearts? Why do we keep it in our workplaces? It's time to take out the trash. This week, I hope that we can name these things for what they are. I hope that we can keep it real like Paul. And to say, listen, I don't, care. I don't care how much you think you're winning at life. If you are driven by a perfectionist or by a self-righteousness, Paul's here to tell you, let me tell you, that is not the best life that you could be living. And that's not the best life for the people around you. So what is the best life? What is the life that Paul's calling us to? Paul is calling us to something called Christian perfection. This is a concept in the Methodist church, and this is where we're going to close. Christian perfection is this idea That we get to hand over our lives to Christ, this life that we want to control, that we want to make better, and we hand over ourselves, most importantly, this person that we want to continually refine and perfect. And and like I've said so many times today, you are not perfect and you're never going to get yourself there. It's just not going to happen. And what Paul is saying to us, this is, Paul is very Methodist. Good job, Paul. He was very Methodist back in the early church. There's this, there's this theology in the Methodist church that we call Christian perfection. And what it says is this. When I sit back and I, and I hand my life over to Christ and I allow Christ to begin to work in me, not me refining me, but Christ refining me, over time Christ is going to perfect me in his love. Does that mean that we're going to be perfect people here on earth? Probably not. John Wesley thought that maybe one or two or three or four people could be perfected in this life. But if you ever think you're perfect, you're not. It's one of those kind of things like a catch-22. Like, oh, I think I'm perfect. No, you're not. Be humble, you know, right? Christian perfection is this, is this call for us to hand ourselves and our lives over. Because the, the God's honest truth is you're never, you're never going to get there on your own. 
you're always going to be disappointed. You're always going to be afraid of failure. You're always going to come up short, and the people around you are going to come up short, and it's going to lead to frustration and suffering and misery. And, and Jesus is offering us a better option. And the option is that we stop trying to do the work ourselves, and we allow Christ to do the work in us. It doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean it's a path of no resistance. In fact, it's really hard work. It's going to lead us to a cross and a tomb, but it also leads to resurrection. Because when we allow ourselves to be emptied of who we think we're supposed to be, and we allow ourselves to be filled with who Christ wants us to be, then we can overflow with that kind of hope and that kind of power and that kind of glory that only comes from God. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for your Apostle Paul, who reminds us that self-righteousness and perfectionism are not gifts of the Spirit. They are dog dung, they are trash, they are scraps meant to be thrown out. God, whatever standard we measure ourselves by or the people around us by, allow us to replace those with you and your love. Allow us to find our worth and our value, not in our achievements, not in our GPA, not in our latest promotion, not in the size of our house, not in the cost of our car, not in any of these things. God, let us find these things in you. Let us hear from you who we are and whose we are, and let us live ourselves, our lives by that standard. God, we give you thanks for your son, Jesus Christ. And it's by his love that we know that we are made perfect. If not in this life, in the next. All of these things, we pray in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who is resurrecting all things. We pray and we say, amen.